Mr. Eater, and um, grateful, so grateful to be here this morning to be able to share this with you. Um, I was just saying to Kim when I first walked in that I um, had a little anxiety about doing this this morning, and um, because I feel like, oh geez, I'm not that AA historian, I'm not this, I'm not that, but guess what? I'm just a compulsive overeater, and I have a story to tell, and it's my story and nobody else's. So um, here we go. So um, starting in the doctor's opinion, um, what we see here is a verifiable account. It's evidence, and we, we need evidence. We need to know why, why are we like this? And, you know, for so many years, as a compulsive overeater who has been through the gamut of all this, um, I finally came to a place where somebody said, this is why, you know, this is, this is the reason. And when we come into this room, we are or he was dealing, the doctor, with people from all different walks of life. And what he did, though, with these alcoholics and other addicts who were of the type who were hopeless. And he called them hopeless. He called them doomed. And after being really honest with myself, I came to know that I was that hopeless person. I was absolutely doomed. I was, did not know really what to do. Um, for many years in my life, I had been a very successful dieter. However, I could never sustain the results of those diets. And it's only because I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't know why, I didn't know how. Um, so, what he tells us is that in the course of his practice, he, had, he met someone who came in contact with another person. This person showed him a way that was different. And um, he came to understand that as a doctor, a medical man, he didn't have all the answers. But some of these people that he was meeting, they had an answer. So he really was very interested in how someone could go from this hopeless state to a state where there was some hope that they could recover from this hideous disease. Uh, of course, they're talking about alcoholism, but to me, there's really not a whole lot of difference between the two. Um, he goes on to say that um, these people were actually tortured. Um, he goes on to say that there is a two-fold problem here. The problem of the mind and the problem of the body. And it's not because we are just maladjusted to life or have all these difficulties that are just part of life. It's because we actually have this mental obsession and this physical allergy to particular foods that we ingest. 
Um, when they, um, let me see. When he talks about the torture, and he talks about the body being quite abnormal as the mind, for me, what that meant was that I couldn't stop eating, I was grossly overweight, I hated myself, let me have some more to eat so that I could calm myself down. And, um, you know, the theory that the doctor had was that the allergy to certain foods, you know, um, kept us powerless. Just like the alcoholic, they're powerless to take that first drink. Well, we were powerless over these foods, but never really knew it. Um, in, as part of his story, he actually goes on to describe Bill. And um, he had met, you know, he had met Bill, he had been in the hospital, he was a man who was, um, you know, had a good job, a good profession, um, well-educated, but that didn't matter. None of those things mattered because when it came to him taking that first drink, he was hopeless. And um, what, what the doctor learned from Bill was that um, he had to realize that Bill found a way to solve the problem. And Dr. Silkworth was a very humble man. And he was willing to say that as a medical professional, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how to help somebody in a way that it's permanent. And he actually started to see how Bill and others as well were finding a solution that um, was not of his doing. Um, he also talks about um, this phenomenon of craving. And I think that it's important for all of us to actually realize, and probably everybody sitting in this room does understand that phenomenon. But what, what does that word mean? Uh, I wanted to look it up. It just says that this is a fact that is observed to exist, especially one whose cause or explanation is in question. So when I think of, you know, my own um, inability to stop, uh, that is a phenomenon. And I'm sure like so many others of you, I have stood in my kitchen and I've been abstinent all day and then something happens. What happens? I don't know. But as the doctor talks about this being a two-fold disease, something happens in my head. I don't know how it happens. Hence the word phenomenon. We don't know what happens. And I would be standing there and all of a sudden, and it wouldn't matter 
what food it was. For me, it just didn't matter. It was putting something in my mouth to calm me, to soothe me, to whatever, to get that effect that they talk about in this book. You know, that effect tells us right here, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate true from false. They are restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience that sense of ease and comfort which comes by taking a few drinks. So for us, it's by, you know, putting something in our mouth, whatever that food is. I don't know about you, but for me, it really didn't matter a whole lot what it was. Um, what I have learned over time is that, um, you know, when the doctor talks about an allergy, I know that I have some skin allergies. Some are very subtle. If I go to, into a garden where there's tomatoes and zucchinis and things growing and I brush up against those leaves, I get the tiniest little rash. But if I go into an area where there's poison ivy, I'm like covered in it in a heartbeat and it's, it's very, very uh, severe. So for me, the same thing has to go with some of these foods that I have to identify. And I, for me, this has been a long process. And I think it's really important for us to understand that, that there are some things that you know immediately that, you know, and we look at flour and sugar. We always talk about flour and sugar. But I will tell you that it has been very, very interesting for me over the last I want to say maybe like three, four years, where I actually identified some things that are so subtle, I just didn't know. And again, that's the problem. We don't know, we don't have the knowledge, and it's really important for us to um, come to terms with what are our allergic foods. You know, I, I just think that that's so important, and I can't sort of like stress that enough because I think people don't really understand. Um, and it comes, you know, um, just comes, I don't want to say from, um, you know, uh, hit and miss, but sometimes that's the way it works. But it's also like really identifying. Um, I think that that's a really important, important fact. Um, to go on, you know, when we talk about um, the obsession and how in order to um, remove that obsession, we have to have a psychic change. That's the term that they use in this book, a psychic change. Um, I really didn't know what that meant. Um, however, you know, when, when we talk about that, I don't know how to describe that to you. Um, all I can say is that the doctor tells us that something more than human power is required. And it took me a long time to come to fully understand that. I've been in these rooms for 28 years. 
And I will admit that this has really been a process for me. This is absolutely not something that I got right away. Um, but what I did learn, and I continue to learn, is how my higher power works in my life. And how with my higher power, I am able, and only with my higher power, to work these steps. Um, I also just wanted to say that, you know, one of the things that is so clear um, is the fact that, um, you know, that fast, I forgot that. <laughs> All right. The doctor also talks about different types of um, alcoholics in here, and um, he does talk about, you know, there are different classifications, and there are people who are not the real deal who can't stop if they want to. You know, if there's something specific in their life that happens, that they can change. But for people like us, for people who are true addicts, compulsive overeaters who have the two-fold illness of that allergy and the obsession of the mind, we can't, we can't do it because I have tried my whole life. And when we get into, um, there is a solution. I'll talk a little bit about what my life was like and how this solution has really helped me understand and be able to become the recovered compulsive overeater just for today. So with that, I'm gonna turn that over to Terry. Okay, thanks. Would you time me for about 15? Okay. Hi, my name is Terry. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Good morning, everybody. So um, I, I love talking about Bill's story because there was a time when I really despised Bill's story because I just thought that um, I really couldn't identify. I really didn't think I could identify. I thought, you know, this was like so far removed from me in the 20s and 30s, what he's talking about. And he's like, you know, you ever see a picture of Bill? I'm thinking, no, I definitely don't relate to him. Tall, lanky, you know, guy. Um, <laughs> You know, and maybe, maybe deep down inside, I'm often frightened of his intelligence, his logic, his rationale. You know, we're talking about a guy that was like a law student, you know, a law student turned stockbroker, you know, basically, you know, that takes a lot of intelligence to get through all that. Um, but it's amazing to me every time I read it how much I relate to so much of what he has to say and the main thing I relate to is this person who and and it's the top of page two that he talks about um, he just when he finally got past that loneliness which I, I relate to of his childhood not so much that, that he talks about here um, but in some other stories that I've read he wanted to prove to the world that he was important. And I just think about the fact that, you know, I so had that, like I, I, I had that feeling like, I've been suppressed for this long as a child, that was my version of it, 
Um, <laughs> and so now it's my turn to really like, you know, show everybody what I have, like really make a difference, um, really get out there and of course do it totally differently than everybody else did, especially my parents, right? Especially I had to, had to look at it that way. Um, and you know, and everything, and you can see like, you know, he talks about everything he did, he had to do to the fullest extent, you know? Um, you know, and he was the kind of guy, you know, uh, president of the class, you know, he, he did like everything he did, like band leader, like he got in the band, he was like the head of the band, like anything he did, he had to be the leader. And I once heard a speaker say, um, the best thing you could ever say to give me a high is you're in charge. And I so relate to that. I'm the oldest of six, you know, um, type A. Uh, my sponsor called me the band leader. My very first sponsor used to call me the band leader. Um, and here's Bill. And I realized like, wow, okay, we're not that far removed from each other. I kind of get that. Um, and when he talks about his life and he talks about, uh, you know, just his whole experience in the professional world and the, his personal life and where it was going, um, just some of the parallels for me is, you know, he got sucked up into this whole world of Wall Street because that's where he could see he could make his fame and fortune, but mostly his fame. I'm, I very much relate to that. Um, and that was me, you know. Um, and those stages of alcoholism that he talks about, especially he talks about excitement uh, in the beginning, and, you know, I can clearly remember food being pretty exciting. I mean, as a kid, it was really exciting because, you know, I come from a European ethnic background, so, you know, everything that was celebratory was about food, so it was pretty exciting. Um, I lived with my grandparents both literally and figuratively at times because my other grandparents lived, like, literally right next door. So, um, it was pretty exciting, you know, to be with the older people of the family who were always gay around food. Like, that was their deal, you know? And that was, like, pretty exciting. Um, and then, you know, just that whole excitement of excelling at school, you know, being, you know, the best I could possibly be, because God forbid I would not fall out of, you know, the, the, the kind of the uh, destiny my parents had for me, you know, the destiny, which was, uh, I love when, um, uh, one of my favorite AA speakers says, you know, he was Italian, he was Catholic, so his destiny was either Pope or President. <laughs> and, um, and, and I can relate to that. I mean, you know, I can relate to that. I, I, well, they weren't liberal enough to think of me as Pope or President, but it was kind of along that line. So um, he says on page three, drink was taking an important and an exhilarating part of my life, that excitement again, you know. Um, when I got to cook, on my own for the first time, right? Which was, you know, generally like uh, adult, uh, getting into college age, uh, living on my own, that sort of thing. Um, and I had definitely lost control with food before that. Um, but it's exhilarating to when you think you have those choices and you're not thinking about what's going on. You're not, you're not thinking about an allergy. You're not thinking about any of that. Yeah, I'm like gaining some weight. It's not really showing real well on me, but it's pretty exciting to like control, like, you know, um, my environment and my habits. Um, and he, and he talks about how it was affecting his wife, right? It was eventually, it was starting to affect his wife. Um, 
So I'm going to fast forward to, you know, meeting my husband, who's a normal leader. He's definitely a civilian. And um, who, uh, you know, he could, you know, he met me on my diet pill scheme days. So I had lost some weight. I was like normal body size. And, you know, he had no idea. He had no idea, like, the cocoon I was in and what would emerge from it. I, I, didn't, e- I didn't even know. I, you know, I had no idea, right? So he definitely didn't know. But I remember him watching me, like, you know, or making comments or seeing because he was a normal eater. Like, you know, he's definitely one of those people. He eats two Oreos out of the bag, puts the bag away, and forgets it's there. And I can't comprehend any of that. And he would watch me eat you know, the bag. And I would think, like, as long as I didn't eat the bag in front of him in one sitting, that would be okay. Like, if I kind of ate the bag eventually and he didn't <laughs> see me eat the whole bag in one, you know, in one sitting, and I hid the fact that I, it was like, you know, we can't distinguish the true from the false. So, you know, and, and Bill talks about this scheming, right? The scheming, like, you know, I'm sure he wasn't openly drinking in front of Lois every day, but she knew the aftermath, and my husband could see the weight piling up, piling up. You know, he could see, um, you know, the, the fact that this so-called almost normal size, because I was never really a normal size, um, you know, I had gotten to where I might have been a, a digit size that made a little more sense to me, you know? But um, he could see, like, you know, the fact that, too, I had to have, you know. I remember my first sponsor asking me, why do you, ask yourself why you have to have that, you know, the have-to-haves. And he would witness the have-to-haves. And he, did, he, you know, normal eaters have no idea what that means, you know. And if they're not addicted to anything, they really don't have any idea. You know, no explanation is, is possible. They're never going to get it. Um, so getting back to Bill on three, my drinking assumed more serious proportions continuing all day and almost every night. So that's just a reminder of the escalation of my food addiction, you know, my compulsive overeating, because even out in the professional world, I can remember sneaking up to the kitchen in the office where I worked, you knowing there was a meeting because I always, you know, kept close watch on the calendar as to when there was a meeting because, you know, only politically correct meetings, which we all always had, had refreshments. And it was always like, you know, morning meetings, I always knew what the menu was. So I would listen if there were meetings and I knew about what time they ended, if I wasn't in them, because if I was in them, I knew exactly what was happening. But if I wasn't in them and I knew exactly when they were ending, I would casually make my way up to the kitchen, knowing that there would be leftovers because that, that was the policy, right? Whenever there's a meeting, just leave out whatever's left. And I can remember stuffing food in my face, hoping, hoping, hoping that I could hear anyone that would possibly be coming up the <clears throat> stairs because, God forbid, they would learn my secret. And my secret was I couldn't stop and I couldn't do what many people did that I never understood and that was cut a little piece like cut a little piece or just avoid it totally like that just blows my mind so um, liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter so he's talking about golfing there right and drinking is a very you know associated recreation with golfing or 
celebration with golfing. Um, eating is associated many times with a lot of things I was doing, you know? Like, uh, let's get together with girlfriends and go shopping. Well, we'd always go for a meal. I mean, we wouldn't just go shopping. Or let's t get together as a family and we're gonna cook this traditional thing that we have every year, you know? But we're gonna cook a lot of it because there's people like Terry who like it, so we're gonna cook a lot of it. You know, like, just the whole idea that I could work it into my life, what I was doing, but what I was doing was abnormal, and the difference between me and the other people doing it, whereas they were there for the celebration and the people. I was there for the bite. I was there for the bite. There was no other reason I was there. So, um, am I, how am I doing? Oh, geez, I better get going. Okay, so, um, so he talks about he talks about excitement. He talks about necessity. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Um, I know and there's a solution. It talks about it. Mary Lou's probably going to talk about it. My husband would say to me, how can you eat another piece of that? You just had three pieces at my mom's. And I, I, reminded, about him. I reminded him about this the other day. I said, do you remember saying that to me? And he got offended because he said, I don't think I said it like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and you know what? He probably didn't. Mm -hmm. He probably didn't. He probably didn't even say it anywhere like that. But in my mind, in my mind that knew I was insane, at some point, you know, you admit the sanity, how insane it is. That's the way I heard it. And I remember not knowing what the answer was. I just knew, you know, it was important to me. Wasn't that enough? It was important to me. You know, so liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Um, I want to just go back to page four when he talks. This is, this is always, I, I just have to relate to this quickly. But he talks about the stock, the stock market and when things crashed. And he watched the people around him do drastic things because their life was, was ruined or over. And he went back to the bar. And that relates, and if you've ever heard my story, you're hearing this again, but that relates to my bottom. Because my bottom is a scene in my kitchen with my husband um, over Sunday morning breakfast, which was loaded with starch, because any breakfast I put together was loaded with starch. Had some protein in it, maybe. Um, and we had had some kind of knockout, dragout fight, and I'm sure it was prompted by me, because my husband is not, a he does not confront very well so um and whatever my behavior was i'm sure i was a rager i was a rager food really distorted my understanding of how to react to things or how to respond i didn't respond to anything i reacted to everything standing there with my three-month-old son looking at me both of them with tears in their eyes because i think i had just thrown a pot across the room and I know in my husband's mind he was thinking, what do I do? I'm, we have this baby, I'm married, who is this witch, who is this person? And things seemed to have settled down only because he was being quiet, holding my son and saying nothing. And I went back to the table to finish my breakfast because that was what was most important to me at the time. It's very embarrassing to admit it, but I'm so grateful today that I understand the disease. Like I understand that pathetic person that watched the people she loved the most totally, totally destroyed by 
the necessity of the of the food and then just being still focused on the necessity of the food so I I do relate to Bill because you know he talks about the fact that he just couldn't stop like things were everything broke around him I mean his life was his wife was supporting him and here he was like totally you know dependent on liquor and and then he comes to the point where he just wants oblivion he wants to just check out with alcohol you know and eventually probably check out and and I get that like I didn't get to that point but I know I could see it I could really really see it so I, I'm, I know I'm talking more about the first eight pages which are the problem um, and how exciting the next eight pages and how much hope they give us. Um, the thing that I just want to say quickly is on page eight, two things about Bill's story that came to me when I read it again this weekend, and that is he concedes, you know, alcohol is his master, and he knows that, um, that he's, he's in complete defeat. He knows, like, there's no hope. Alcohol is his master. I knew that about food. Um, he, he goes to the hospital a couple of times and he gets from Dr. Silkworth the, the understanding and the knowledge of what's wrong with him. And I just need to say quickly is that reminds me not so much of being in the disease and kind of admitting my powerlessness when I understood that food had control of me. But it's also a reminder, and I don't know how many people here have been in the rooms a while, but it's also a reminder of how many times we can get stuck in the book and understand what the doctor's saying, but not get past that and apply the rest of the steps. And that's mm -hmm. something I've experienced and I hear of quite often. So I just want to wrap up. I'm sorry I didn't get to the last eight pages, which I think are just so full of hope when Bill does his steps. And, you know, Ebby gave him the second step, basically. I, you know, that's the thing that just always just grabs me really tight is that he knew food was his master, and Ebby told him there was a way out, and that was, you know, that was a spiritual way out. So um, I'll just end with my favorite paragraph in Bill's story is, my friend promised when these things were done, I would enter into a new relationship with my creator. And we know Bill needed a new relationship. I needed a new relationship because I played God for a long time. I didn't know God. And that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. I mean, if somebody would have told me that was possible, if somebody would have told me that, you know, that that could be mine, I would have never believed it. And today I know it's true. So I'm going to stop there because I overwent my time. Thanks. So we're moving on to chapter two, There is a Solution. And uh, before I actually get into this book, I'd like to just give you a really brief chronology of uh, why I needed a solution. Um, and I wrote this down this morning. There was never a time in my life since as a child where I wasn't dominated by food. In third grade, I was 127 pounds. In ninth grade, I went on my first diet, that was Weight Watchers. In 10th grade, I started drinking, so all the Weight Watchers and everything else went out the window. By the time I had gotten out of high school, I was 19 when I started taking diet pills. <clears throat> uh, I took diet pills for roughly 12 years. I lived in Philadelphia, I had a lot of friends in uh, Montgomery County. 
I went to a doctor in South Philly, I went to a doctor in Norristown, and I went to a doctor in um, Kensington. And the doctor in Kensington I went to as myself and my twin sister. He was only a man that pushed pills. He was not a real doctor. The other two were actually had, you know, more real practices. I did that till I was like 31 or 32 years old. In addition to that, if somebody had other means of speed, whether it be cocaine, meth, whatever, I was there. Because all I believed in my mind was that if I didn't eat, I could be skinny, and if I was skinny, I would be fine. I didn't know all the problems that I really had, and that's truly what I believed. However, one day, now, where's the higher power? Psh. One day, I looked in the mirror, and I saw what I looked at. I was skinny. I had these big-ass dark circles under my eyes. My hair had lost all of its sheen. You know, it was just dull. Um, and I think at that time, I'm going to say, I don't know for sure, I was maybe around 120, 125 pounds. It was the smallest I had ever been as an adult. Um, so when I looked in the mirror and I saw myself and I saw my partner at the time, he was not my husband at the time, but we were living together, and um, he did not have the same problem at I, as I did, but he had an anxiety problem where he liked taking the diet pills because it made him be more social. Um, and I looked at him and I saw those same dark circles under his eyes. I saw how pitiful he looked too. And I know today that it was the grace of God, it was the hand of God that just said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I quit around, like I said, 31 or 32. However, what happened after that was every diet that I could find I was on. I had staples in my ears. Um, every, everything that I could purchase, I did thousands and thousands of dollars on anything that would make me thin or keep me thin. In 89, I went on, that's 1989, I went on the Optifast diet, and there may be some uh, old head like me uh, sitting around here who know what that was. I went in there at 270 pounds. You did not eat. I did not eat food for six months. You got these little packages of, um, you know, some powdered stuff. You mixed it with water, and that's what you had. Nothing else. Six months, I lost 110 pounds. I was their poster child. I was the perfect dieter. I had a lot of willpower. And then one day they said, well, we're done. Your six months is up. Time to go out and <laughs> live on your own. So for about a week, I was okay. <laughs> I was afraid the first week because I thought, geez, I haven't eaten anything in six months. Uh, now let me just put some little bits of food in my stomach. But after about a year, I was back at 250 pounds because I didn't learn a blessed thing.
I did not learn that I had a problem in my mind and in my body. I just thought I ate too much. Um, in 1991, uh, I came into OA and I wanted to just explain that so that you knew that I was the real deal. I am the person that does not know how to stop eating. And I really didn't know at the time there was a solution. However, a friend of mine went to, a girl that I worked with went to an OA meeting. And the next day she came into work and she said to me, oh, I went to this meeting, I'm never going back. All they did was talk about God. This is the honest to God's truth. It wasn't until 12, 12 13 years later when I was sitting at my desk, devastated, uh, because now I'm great big girl again, and I saw an article in the paper about Overeaters Anonymous. And I made a couple calls. I found out where there was a meeting in Williamstown. It was not too far from where I lived. And I got to the parking lot, and I'm sitting in front of a community center wondering, all right, now what? Nobody said, nobody told me where to go. And I sat in that parking lot, and I thought to myself, I'm just going to wait for some big girls to come walking by me and just follow them in. And that is exactly what I did. I saw a couple of women who were pretty big, and I walked up to them and I said, I'm here for the Overeaters Anonymous meeting. Are you, you know, do you know where it's at? And they took me in. And I'm gonna tell you something, and I, this is another thing that I cannot explain, but I knew after five minutes, I'm not lying, that this was different. I knew it was different. I didn't know how or why or what, what was going to happen. But I, <laughs> I know, like, you know, maybe it sounds crazy. But when we opened that meeting and we said the serenity prayer for the first time, and I did not know that prayer, but I held somebody's hand. I don't even know who. But I swear, I felt like these hands on my shoulders, like somebody was wrapping me up. And I thought, oh my God, you know, like what's going on here? And I heard a lot, of, a lot of things that I didn't know. People were saying, you have to give away your food. I'm like, what, you know, who am I giving it to? What am I, I, I took that literally because I didn't know. So when we start to read this chapter, it starts to talk about people from all walks of life who come together who don't know one another. I didn't know one blessed person in that room. But what I heard for the very first time ever were people talking how, you know, yes, they were these overweight people who were now not so overweight, who were eating in a way that I completely didn't understand, but they were happy. They had freedom from the obsession of food, and I really did not ever understand what that could possibly be like. Um, they talk about, it says here, the tremendous fact for everyone of us is that we have discovered a common solution. And this is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from compulsive overeating. So, I learned that this was an illness, 
that it was it was twofold. We talked about you know the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. Um, I learned a lot of things, and on page eighteen. I, I love the fact that there are italics in this book, and I always pick those out because they do have a lot of meaning for me. It says, talks about the ex-problem drinker has found the solution, is properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the confidence of another person in just a few hours. And that was what I got going to those meetings in the very beginning. I got to realize that these people knew something that other people didn't know. They were telling me that it was impossible for me to have sugar, and that was the first thing that I had to put down. But I was still eating all other kind of things in the beginning, so you know it really wasn't having that much of an impact. But it was teaching me just a little bit, you know, that there are actually foods that have a reaction in my body. Um, I like the fact that it says you know, that these people don't take a holier-than-thou attitude, or I have to admit, and maybe some of you know this too, that I'm sure that on your journey, if you've been around for a long time like I have, you have met people who have a holier-than-thou attitude. And guess what? I had to learn about that too. I had to understand that we're just all human beings trying to get to the next day. You know, and did, I am very defiant. I did not ever like anybody telling me, well, you know, back in the day, a lot of people told you what you had to eat. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. And I had quite a few arguments with people over that type of thing. I learned today, I learned today that this is my abstinent. Yours is yours and yours is, you know, and we really have to learn that, you know. I, I have a real issue still today with anybody saying that you can't have something. You have to know for yourself, what are your allergic foods? I think that's just so important. Um, this talks about how none of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. However, one of the things that I have learned and more recently, you know, let's talk about maybe the last five years, is that, no, I can't do this 100% of the time, just like everybody else, I have obligations in life. But I do know that a portion of my day, every day, has to be spent doing some work. Working with other people, I know today, is what keeps me out of the food. It keeps me sane. It keeps me wanting to be kind and tolerant and loving, even in times when I don't want to be, when somebody just gets on my nerves and I don't want to be nice. You know, I mean, there's plenty of times that those happen. This program taught me I can be nice, even in those situations, you know. Um, I know I don't have much, I have two minutes. So I want to read my other most favorite paragraph in this book on page 24. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in, in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. 
we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first bite. I am without defense. But I have a solution today, and my solution is my higher power and working these steps and working with you. That's my solution, you know? I don't have another way because been there, tried it, and none of it worked. You know, I talked about I was a very successful dieter, you know, but never could have any sustained results because I didn't know the problem. So knowing that there is a problem, knowing that we have this disease, that there are some things that for each one of us may be a little bit different, but if we don't have those things, we can have this recovery and we can live a life that's so amazing. I just, you know, I know I'm talking too much. Now, um, I just feel as though um, I've been so blessed to have come to this program. You know, I don't know why I was selected and maybe somebody else, the person sitting on the bus next to me was not. I don't know that. Um, I just know that today my blessings are so great I can't imagine ever having a better life. And I know today that what that means is not about material things. It's about, you know, um, waking up every day, thanking God for this unbelievable life that I have. All right, done. Hold on, okay. Oh my God, stop. Okay, so I'm done. <laughs> I don't know how to make it stop. Oh, here we go. Okay. I'm sorry. It's a good life. <laughs> okay, so on to more about alcoholism, and I will wrap up a little quicker than 15 because I took long the first time. Um, so, you know, whenever people talk about more about alcoholism, often, like me, they immediately think of the characters that are talked about or the, the fellows that are talked about and more about alcoholism. Um, but that first page says the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Um, and the delusion that we're like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. I mean, that is just so descriptive of how I lived the life when I knew, like Bill, that food had me licked, but I had no idea what to do about it, you know? I, I had this delusion that, you know, I remember I, I wasn't a big dieter. I didn't like them. <laughs> So I wasn't, I, I didn't have a lot of experience with it, but I was in, you know, one of the pay and way programs maybe two times. And I remember the first time around thinking, I'm not at goal weight, but I'm so close. I can go have whatever I want to. Thinking, thinking, distorted thinking, 
that I wouldn't eat as much of it now. Like, that was absurd. I ate like 10 times more than I had before, you know? And then I can remember, um, you know, a therapist saying to me, who obviously didn't understand the disease I have, um, well, why can't you just have a little bit? Well, today I know. It's an allergy. I can't have, you know, if I'm allergic to fish, I can't have a little bit. <laughs> you know, I, I just can't have it. So, um, and then the delusion that I'm going to be like other people. Oh, my God. I don't know how, many how much time you spent thinking about, first of all, how easy it was for my sister to keep a normal body size. We're the same, we're the same parents. Like, well, how could that be? Right? She's got, like, the size 6 and I'm in like the size 22. Like I was 115 pounds, uh, 215 pounds plus, and I'm five one and a half. So I didn't wear it well. And um, you know how can that be? You know, but but I had the notion that well, there were certain things I could do to be where she was. Dieting, exercising. I wasn't good in any of those. Mm -hmm. Um, but, or maybe, you know, as I got older, my, my metabolism would change and I would get like her. Like that was never going to happen. But, you know, I had this distorted notion, you know, um, or at work, I had a person I worked with who kept that drawer, you know, that drawer that has everything in it. And she was the type of person that, you know, she would buy these famous Philadelphia things in this little pack and sh there were three of them and she would eat one of them and put the pack away and like, forget it. And, like, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'll eat one, and then maybe I'll just, like, ration them and have, like, one a day. Like, that was ever going to happen. Like, you know, I mean, okay, like, vitamins I'd want more of if they tasted good, right? Right? Because that's, that's what I am. I mean, and then they lace every food with sugar, so why wouldn't I want more of it, Right. So uh, we know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control and that we're in the, we're in the grip of a progressive illness. And uh, I couldn't see the progression of it at the time. But when someone said, write a food history and, you know, write your history with food, and I realized I was extremely numbers conscious, and I never thought of myself as a numbers conscious person, but I knew every weight and every size you know, I, I knew all these numbers because I, I always fought the numbers. Like, I don't want this number to be on the scale, and I don't want that size in the dressing room. You know, I fought the numbers continuously. So, but it was the progression. I couldn't deny it. I could not deny it, you know. Um, so, what I like about more about alcoholism is it talks about the fact that I can have a crappy day and I can have a great day and I'm still gonna eat. Like my emotions don't know the difference between high and low. You know, they, my, my allergy and my obsession with food doesn't know the difference between high and low. So um, I need to tell you quite honestly that Jim was always one of my favorites and more about alcoholism because he puts whiskey in the milk and I satiate every time I say it, okay, I really do. Um, and maybe it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't, it's like the idea, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a compulsive reader. They talk about mixing something with milk. I mean, I just had to put down coffee cause I realized, or at least coffee with milk because I realized that flavored milk is euphoric for me. Like I can tell you about the history of that sometime, but anyway, um, the thing that strikes me about Jim is he's having a bad day. He had words with the boss. 
he's got to be really, really pissed off that he works for somebody that owns the business he used to own. I mean, you know, I just don't know where I'd go with that resentment. <laughs> Certainly not to work. But, and, um, and then he makes this decision. Like, I know those decisions. It's like the delusion that you're going to be like somebody else. So you take that ride out in the country to stop at a bar for lunch. Like, I know that delusion that I'm going to go to the buffet, but I'm not going to overeat this time, you know? I'll never forget, this is, this is such a le- lesson in surrender. And I was not recovered at this point, but I was going to a buffet and I had that, you know, that alcoholic mind, like, oh my God, I'm going to a buffet, what am I gonna eat? I'm supposed to be absent, blah, blah, blah. And so, somebody said, does your husband know your food plan? And I said, yeah, yeah, he pretty much does know it by now. And is he supportive of it? Yeah, yeah, he really was. They said, let him get your plate. Oh, see? (laughs) I mean, you know, like, does that, we all feel that pain of control, right? (laughs) Right? And I, and I, you know, I get that. So, like, making the decision to go to the bar, to have a sandwich, I know where that was going, because I know where it goes for me, you know? If somebody would have said to Jim, hey, Jim, don't go to the bar you know, why don't you take a ride over here to the, you know, to the luncheonette, um, he would have still found a way to go to the bar. You know, he would have still found a way to go to the bar. So, um, and of course, this chapter tells me over and over and over again, I have no mental defense. I am not going to be the one that stops myself from eating. I'm never going to be the one. I'm not the human power that's going to do that because the book has told us, no human power is going to do that. And I'm definitely not going to be the human power that does that. So Fred, same thing, only he's having a great day. And the thing about Fred, and I, I always like Jim better, but the thing about Fred that I read on page 40, when he talks about how he got in the debacle he did with alcohol, he said, I felt I had every right, I'm on a page 40 at the bottom, I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would only be a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. I was a pretty accomplished person, you know, I was pretty intelligent, I had, you know, education, climbing the ladder, got the, you know, the, the rich man's family, like, you know, all that. I had it together, I could be on my guard, I, you know, I, I parented my parents' four children and my parents. Like, I thought I could really handle anything. But I, I never, never understood how food had me be, ever. You think I would. You know, you think you would when your skin is literally just breaking because you're gaining weight so fast that it can't be that elastic. You know, your skin can't be that elastic. So, um, you know... And Fred had that self-knowledge again. Again, I kind of go back to what God just really brought to me this weekend, and that was, you know, I was in these rooms a long time before I understood my purpose. Really, you know, a long time. Um, I came in 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 91. Um, I got abstinent in 93 from my alcoholic foods. Uh, I really did concede to my innermost self that I was powerless over food and my life was unmanageable. I believed in a God different than the God of my childhood. Um, I made a decision 
to turn things over to God when I could. <laughs> when I could. Like, I thought I was doing it always, but I look back now, it was like, yeah, a lot of the time, you know? And I stayed free from my alcoholic foods for a, a long time, always doing this, uh, I got I to, gotta, like, keep, I got to keep working the steps. But I never picked up this book and read the first 164 pages. Like, the stories were very inspirational in the back, but I never read the first 164 pages. And I would um, do the steps over and over and over again because I thought the more fourth steps that you did, the more recovery you were going to have. Like, that was my distorted notion. You know, that was, that was what I thought. So um, I had a lot of that knowledge that Bill had at first, you know, when he talked to Dr. Silkworth, that Jim had before he went out to have, you know, the sandwich and the glass of milk. Like, he had a lot of, he had a reasonable amount. He, you know, he, he made a beginning, made a beginning. Um, and Fred, Fred had, he was, you know, he's an intelligent guy. He, uh, he had self-confidence and, and, and some intelligence. That's like a great combination, but really, for me, it was deadly. You know, it was pretty deadly. So, um, anyway, uh, they both talk about making no fight whatever. Hadn't thought of the consequences at all. And I, I forget the saying how it goes, but I heard it again today. Remorse. Remorse. <clears throat> Um, I'm sorry. It's remorse, regret, repeat. Remorse, regret, repeat. I think that's the three words. And I can so relate to that, you know? Like, the fight, I could never fight hard enough. I was never going to be able to fight hard enough. And the, uh, the last thing I guess I want to share is people will call, you know, they're studying the book, and they will ask you, What's your favorite paragraph and more about alcoholism? And to me, it's kind of the summary paragraph, which is the last paragraph. And that is, you know, because he's got to say it one more time, but he says it succinctly here, Bill. The alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. Like, you could lock the cabinets you know, or, you know, keep me at home, tell me I can't go out, make sure there's no food available. I mean, you could, like, go to those parameters, but what I know about that is it's still in here. Like, nothing changes, you know? And eventually, like, I'm eating grass or something (laughs) because nothing's going to change, you know? Nothing is going to change. His defense must come from a higher power. Beautiful setup for step two. Beautiful setup because when you read this chapter and you realize pretty much we're hopeless because when you're happy, you're going to eat. When you're sad, you're going to eat. You're going to eat. You're going to eat. You're going to eat, Terry. So the only thing, you know, I had this um, T-shirt when I first got into program because it really touched what I learned. And the T-shirt had a little stick figure with a little quote bubble that said, it's not my fault. Like, that was so liberating to find out I had a disease. But that was only going to get me knowledge. I had a disease. You know, this was the most important part. The only way I could lick that disease, or at least keep it at bay, was the defense of a higher power. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. 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 Thanks.